Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast on Leadership Forward. Um, while scant investment has historically been made in public sector leadership development, individuals in these roles are often the backbone of state government, and they lead incredibly complex programs. NAMD, CHCS, and the Millbank Memorial Fund as individual organizations have been dedicating to supporting the leadership development of public sector leaders. Starting in September of 2019, we have been working as a consortium to accelerate and amplify our collective impact. Our first collaborative action was the development of a shared leadership framework for public sector leaders, which we introduced on an earlier Leadership Forward podcast. We're continuing to introduce each of the domains in the framework via focused conversations with public sector leaders. Today's conversation will look at the domain of engaging and motivating people. Some of the core competencies within this domain include collaborating and working effectively in teams, developing and directing others and delegating work, managing conflict and negotiating key issues, and communicating effectively with internal and external audiences. Each of these core competencies within the domain have an associated set of skills and behaviors. The development of those skills and behaviors is key to public sector leaders looking to effectively lead throughout this domain. Today's conversation will focus on how Lamazetta Jones and Karen Kinsey have put the behaviors and skills of this domain into practice, particularly in their efforts to ensure that equity is addressed within their agencies, both internally and externally. With that, I'll turn it over to Gretchen, who will introduce herself and our two panelists before they start the conversation. Hello, everyone. Nice to be with you. Uh, my name is Gretchen Hammer, and I'm the Senior Strategic Advisor at the National Association of Medicaid Directors. And I'm thrilled to have been a part of the consortium with the Milbank Memorial Fund and the Center for Healthcare Strategies, along with the National Association of Medicaid Directors. And I'm even more thrilled to be on the call with you all today to have the chance to learn from Secretary Jones and Director Kimsey about their experiences engaging and motivating people. So I'll first turn it over to each of our um, esteemed public sector leaders to allow them to introduce themselves, and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Secretary Jones, may I start with you? Of course, thank you for having me today. It's definitely a pleasure to be a part of this conversation and to interact with Karen. Uh, you learn best when you get to interact with colleagues throughout the country. You bring new things to your state. You send other things to other states. So it's very just a very nice experience. But um, I really appreciate you all inviting me today. Um, a little background about me. Um, I started this journey in health and human services over 30 years ago. I don't want to date myself, but got to put it out there. But over 30 years ago, I began on my journey and I began as um, a social service career trainee at the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services, my home state. Um, I felt very fortunate and blessed to be brought in by the state to do the critical work as related to child well-being and family reunification. Um, and I worked my way up from being a social service career trainee to being deputy bureau chief for the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services. Um, and then made the decision to move a little bit more into the Midwest. And I went to Minnesota, specifically Ramsey County, which is a part of the Twin Cities. It's the St. Paul side of the Twin Cities model. And I went to St. Paul, Minnesota to be over their children and family services system that included everything from child protection to children's mental health and all that which falls in between 
And within a few years, I became director of social services for the um, county. And that would be everything children's, everything adults, including a mental health center and a detox center. And I was also distinctly proud to be the first person of color to serve as a social services director in the state of Minnesota. Um, and after being there for about six years, I was very, again, fortunate and blessed to be asked by Governor Raimondo to come to Rhode Island to be Secretary of Health and Human Services. And Health and Human Services would include um, everything from Medicaid, of course, to Department of Health, DHS, um, Department of Children, Youth and Families, Behavioral Health, De uh, Behavioral Health Developmental Disabilities and Hospitals, as well as Office of Healthy Aging, which is our beautiful way of describing elderly services. It's much more age appropriate and veteran services. So I'm just very honored to have been in Rhode Island for the last year working under Governor Raimondo. Terrific, thank you. And what a journey. It's, it's definitely been a journey. I had a few other stops in between. <laughs> I'm very fortunate to work for uh, Archdiocese of Chicago, as well as the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Foundation in South Africa. So very thankful for those opportunities that and that came uh, in between taking a little rest from state service. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific, thank you. Director Kimsey, I'll turn it over to you maybe to introduce yourself and give us a little of your uh, professional journey. Okay, and hello everyone. And it's great to, uh, thank you. It's such an honor to be here with you today and also with Secretary Jones to have our conversations about topics so, so near and dear um, to all of us. And it just uh, really thrilled um, to be here today. So um, similar to Secretary Jones, I've been around in public service for uh, quite a few years. I uh, started humble beginnings, my backgrounds in social work. And I wanted to save the world one person at a time and um, child protective and adult protective services and did a fellowship and uh, into state government because I loved policy and I was curious and landed at the Medicaid agency. And I will be honest, I had no idea what Medicaid was <laughs> aside from helping people fill out forms when I worked in the hospital. And I did the fellowship, fell in love with it, and they offered me a position as a policy analyst. I took the role and never looked back. And I have been um, working with Medicaid and for Medicaid for over 25 years now. And so I somehow found my way into uh, different areas of promotion among the agency. It's so much fun. So there's never a dull day in any Medicaid program. And I, I had the, the beautiful opportunities to help create long-term care benefits, um, HCBS waivers, people developmental disabilities, consumer-directed service options, helped with um, quality services for nursing centers, all different types of and behavioral health as a background as well. And just kind of grew my way up and through the program and also some of the bigger pieces, I had the privilege of being a part of us helping to pull all long-term care services into managed care. We are working uh, hard with the financial alignment demonstrations, um, implementing our own MLTSS products, which we now have 96% of all of our populations are in managed care. And and doing those roles, which is such a privilege and an honor, I found myself, uh, I was asked by Governor Northam 
a couple of years ago to step in the role as chief deputy and then help be the operational lead for Medicaid expansion for our benefit, which was a true privilege and an, um, an experience. And we brought up the benefit in six short months. And we now have over 400,000 uh, Virginians receiving critical health coverage through that benefit and just in time right? Especially with COVID. And so in a, a year ago, um, actually this week, I became the director for the Medicaid program here. I stepped up into the role and it has been truly a labor of love and um, just a privilege and an honor and also working on the NEMD board and helping represent the states at the federal level is truly an honor. So it's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Terrific. Thank you. So one of the things I love about starting a conversation with that is, is first of all, to hear the passion that obviously the two of you have brought to um, your levels of public service, uh, and in particular in health and human services. But it also is always a good reminder of the breadth of health and human services under each of your jurisdiction, right? So from elder services to healthy aging services, excuse me, to, uh, you know, services for young children, to individuals with disabilities and those with chronic conditions, those who um, may be uh, in a facility or living in community. With such a large portfolio, it's, it's clear that you need high-performing teams underneath you, right? Um, in addition to the breadth of the portfolio, many of the programs the two of you have the opportunity to oversee are both state and federal in their nature, as well as have often a local implementation component, adding to the complexity. So one of the things we wanted to capture in the framework is just how critical it is for public sector leaders to really engage and motivate the people that they work with both internal to your agency, but also the external stakeholder communities, which are so deeply vested in the success of these programs. Mm -hmm. So as Hillary highlighted, you know, some of the main things that we've seen public leaders really have to be good at in this area is figuring out how to collaborate and work effectively in teams, how to develop and direct others. I think both of your personal journeys show that, you know, you went through incredible development throughout your careers. Mm -hmm to find yourselves in the senior positions that you're in today. So how you do that and how you then delegate to others. There is a lot of conflict in health and human services because the issues are just so critical and so life impacting. So how do you manage conflict and negotiate key issues as well as the real importance of communicating effectively? So those four competencies we have observed um, are really critical for public leaders to be successful. Maybe I wanted to ask each of you in reverse order, maybe. Um, so starting with you, Director Kimsey, you know, across your career and in your current position, which of those parts of this competency have been so critical for you around collaborating in teams, directing others, managing conflict, communication, Sort of which would you reflect has been um, really critical to your success in your current role? Well, um, actually, one of the key pieces is, um, I think it's the collaboration piece, but I often pull that in in my communication strategy. So uh, I, it, it's very important at this role in any role that we're all in as public servants. And by the way, I love, love being a public servant. And as a matter of fact, I have, um, even when I was a child, I was doing public service work. Um, and so I, I, I just am going to miss it so much when I'm not doing it in this capacity anymore. But one of the, the single-handedly most successful components for me was the ability to successfully communicate with people, to 
to work with, and that, that's not only internal, and we had our own internal work to do, and I can mention that a little bit, but externally with people, stakeholders, and that, that includes all stakeholders from wherever they are. You have to meet them where they are, even when they're really tough conversations, especially when they're tough conversations. That's when you meet with them more, and you keep them close, and you work as hard as you can with them. For stakeholders, for us, for example, some of the big key stakeholders that we have, we have regular monthly touch-based meetings with them where we just talk about anything and everything that comes up. Um, any type of major stakeholder um, in, any project that requires stakeholder input, we're out there and actively engaged in working with them early on. We are actively not only seeking their feedback, but incorporating their input and then demonstrating to them that we've heard them and that we may not always agree on an approach that we're going to take, but the important part is that people feel heard and that their thoughts are taken into account. They can live with it, maybe not being exactly the way they want it to be as long as their input is taken into account. And so I think that has is, is been very critical, and especially within our own agency in the last year in particular, we um, were losing a lot of staff and we're having issues with retaining qualified staff, especially for individual state employees under five years. And so we actually did a survey to say what is going on. And we found that the, the trust level with the leadership was around 48%. And we, they told us all different kinds of ways and reasons why they felt that way. And we, over the past year, engaged in a very systemic effort to address those issues, to communicate with people more, to be more visible to the policies that we set, not only internal for our own employees, but for our program as it is as well, and to make sure that they feel valued and important, countless webinars to meet with them and speak with them. We had a webinar on two different topics. We have 700 people in our agency, and we maxed out at 500. Just in one topic alone, that many people wanted to engage. And so it's equally important if you're going to have a very successful program and for Secretary Jones, successful programs. Um, but for us in, in Virginia Medicaid, we need a happy workforce team and in order to make the program work as best as it can. And over the course of the year and making those changes and making sure people know and heard, we heard about equitable pay, um, leave time being flexible, especially during COVID, staying connected and being very visible. Communication is the big piece. Our, our, our trust level went up to 88%, I'm really happy to say, and we're engaging more other issues beyond that, which we'll talk about a little more in this discussion. So I'll turn it over to Secretary Jones. Yes, please. You know, for me, I know for a fact that I was placed in this earth, this earth to help people. Um, that's what I know my purpose is. And I try to stay truly rooted in what I know my purpose is. And I was raised by a very strong grandmother who helped me see that early on based upon her own work in our communities. When I look at um, different domains and which ones resonates for me, I definitely would select communicating effectively with internal and external audiences and managing conflict and negotiating key issues. Mm -hmm. So I live with that statement to get to my piece of my vision, my mission, what I see as it relates to my role here in Rhode Island is to strengthen and support individuals and families. And when you do that, you build community, you build a stronger state. But to do that, you must use a racial equity lens. You must 
meaningfully and authentically engage community. And you have to make sure that people have choices. Mm-hmm. And ironically, even when it comes to something such as child protection and removal of a child, a parent should be given choices. It may be that child can stay with them, but where would you like your child to be while they're not with you? Mm-hmm. When it comes to different programs, what we're offering for our seniors, for our elders, you know, for those with developmental disabilities, we must always lead with choices. So obviously all of my vulnerable populations are all on the top level one for me. It's not a one ABC, they're all right there, but we have to look at how are we helping to strengthen and support based upon what families are saying they need, what individuals Mm -hmm. are saying they need. And I say that because even in Medicaid, especially in Medicaid, we need to ensure that people have choice, that we're creating choice, that we're creating opportunities. Medicaid has a lot of power because look at the money that's there. Use that power to truly help to strengthen and support families, but you have to do that by listening to them first. Not in the middle, not at the end, not after you've already designed everything. You need to bring them to the table at the beginning. And you need to ensure that everyone is at that table, not just your stakeholders who are very important. I want to say that, but more importantly, the families. Mm-hmm. These are going to really tell you what the real data is. If you're honest about it. So we need to be very conscious of that and we need to stay on top of that. So we have to communicate effectively and we need to do it internally and externally. And Effectively doesn't mean that it's what you do it the way, you, you know, in a way that shapes that you only hear what you want to hear. You need to truly be listening, asking questions, and ensuring that whatever you create is a reflection of what's really needed and not just what's uh, policy driven, what our analytical minds may tell us. We need to stop being so analytical and so linear. And we need to be programmatic and truly open and listening to families. And what I stress to my team is you need to just become comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations. You need to get there. And we need to start internally with our leadership staff and everyone who works with them to get them to that place where they become comfortable with those uncomfortable conversations. Mm -hmm. They do that internal self-reflection and they really know what's within themselves so they can do the best external, you know, exploration. So with that, you know, communication, negotiating those key issues are critical, but not if you don't use a race equity lens, engage the community and ensure choice. And that's just what I stay centric to. And I, and I, I want to say it over and over and over again. Yes. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate, um, you know, it can be so easy for a public sector leader to become distanced from those that we serve, right? Your days can be filled with stakeholders and people who have to lobby you or ask you questions. Or, and, and it takes a true commitment to take this concept of engaging and motivating people to lead first with the people being those that we serve and those that our programs are designed to serve. And so I really appreciate you pulling that through 
In addition, I really appreciate the, the racial equity lens that you bring. And that is a place where I wanted our conversation to continue. Um, because as you, as you mentioned in your introduction, you know, you were the first uh, leader of color in uh, the state of Minnesota. And this notion of intentional conversations around race and equity, race equity, as well as the intentionality that's required to create diverse and inclusive and equitable internal operations that then, as you said, Secretary Jones, need to be reflected in our external operations. So maybe having the chance to hear from both of you, you know, in the idea of how you are engaging and motivating people and, and having these conversations around development of staff and the kinds of teams that are built and, and whose knowledge is, is valued in these conversations, maybe just a little, um, perspective from you all about how that's more important even as we work on uh, creating diverse, equitable, and inclusionary uh, agencies within, um, for you, Secretary Jones, the multiple agencies under your jurisdiction. And then Karen, I know um, in Virginia, you've done some of this work as well. So maybe some of those internal um, particular uh, skills you've had to use as you've led these conversations on your internal teams. Definitely. Well, first, let me know, I, sh I probably should have shared. I am also the first person of color to serve as secretary for Health and Human Services here in Rhode Island. So I've had a lot of firsts. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I was the first person in my family to go to grad school. So there's a lot of firsts. And I stand on the shoulders of some amazing people who have come way before me, men and women, as it relates to truly changing the dynamic and shape of this world to create opportunity. Um, race equity work isn't just uncomfortable conversation for white people. It's also uncomfortable conversation for people of color. It's a dangerous space. It's a dangerous space because you can, um, as a person of color, trying to navigate racial equity and fight against injustices, you have to also uh, be able to practice humility, because the first thing I tell everyone is I may be a black woman, but I don't know all things black. That's a misnomer. And I don't speak for all black people. What I can speak on is our history, which is well documented as it relates to the historic systemic racism, structural as well as internalized, institutionalized, and, and so forth. So when I approach race equity work, as well as fighting against injustices, always say we need to create a safe space, a safe space for everyone. White person should not feel like if they say one thing, quote unquote, wrong, they're gonna be labeled as a racist. Mm -hmm. They were just trying to understand and learn. And the color should not be labeled as, and I'll use myself, an angry black woman, because I'm trying to bring light onto the injustices or the inequities that exist. So we have to create a safe space. We have to also create an opportunity for people to learn about historic trauma within all of our communities of color, Latino, uh, African-American, our Native American community, and so forth. We need to all learn and do self-reflection. Um, and, and from gaining that insight, then you begin to learn about microaggressions and implicit bias, explicit bias, and so on. 
you begin to read, you begin to mature. But if you don't let that self that self reflection happen, and you don't create a safe space, you're not going to get any get anywhere. In all of my uh, areas of work in health and human services, we see disproportionality. We see families of color overrepresented in involuntary services like child protection, Department of Corrections, things such as, as that. But then you see people of color underrepresented in voluntary services such as DD, such as an adult, you know, the adult services, whether it's adult protection or case management or things of that nature. Um, you have misnomers about who are the, the, the more significant recipients of DHS benefits, such as SNAP. Um, actually, you will find that white families are very well represented in that space, not just people of color. So for me, when I look at leading in that space, I look at first trying to create the safe space, have education, but also stress that this is important. This is urgent. We don't have time to do no more studies. Please, no more studies. Yes. Um, and we need to just be honest with ourselves. Ask ourselves when we create policies, procedures, what role, of any, has race played in it? Just be honest about it. And when we say, well, that's what the federal government has set up, that's what the state has set up, well, that's not an excuse for continuing doing the wrong thing. So we need to ask ourselves those questions. We need to create race equity teams within our organizations. We, um, I'm very blessed to be leading our equity work here in Rhode Island and our equity council, which is made up of all of our communities of color, actual people in the community, not just stakeholders. We need to look at how we're creating that space. So for me, I'm always looking at knowing as a, as a black woman raising black children, I don't have time to wait. I need to push, but I need to have partners with me helping in that journey um, where individuals of color should lead in this equity space. We need all people in that space as a part of that leadership team. And we need to work together to combat this inequity and this injustice. That's where I would go in a heartbeat on that topic. Terrific. Thank you so much. And I think, you know, you, you bridged in that guidance to us many of the things that, that Karen, you've talked about that you need to create a trusting environment, you know, and as you said, Secretary Jones, in the beginning, you need to help people understand that they may hear things that make them uncomfortable, whether they're learning from families about how our programs do and do not work for people, or whether that's engaging in conversations with colleagues, and that we have to make space for that uncomfortableness and yet at the same time ensure that everybody feels safe, right? And that is the leadership challenge on many of these conversations is to say, we must have this conversation and we must recognize that it will be uncomfortable for all of us, but for some more than others and that yet everyone is, is safe and that it is urgent. We can no longer just observe that the brick and mortar of our programs and of our institutions are um, leading to these inequities. We must act to review those. So thank you so much. And I think that ties so um, importantly to all of the aspects that we've described in this domain. I know, um, Karen, you've had some experiences in this in your state. Um, and so maybe a chance to hear from you as well. 
Um, yes, um, actually, so I'll, I'll lean into it, everything that Secretary Jones said is, is right on task, right on target. And I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit, though, about some of the work that we have done in this area um, and working on that. And with the safe, safety and trust components and issues, um, it is so critical. We just talked about that. But about a little over a year ago, almost two years ago, about a year and a half ago, we actually formed a diversity and inclusion council in our own agency um, based off of some issues that were happening in our country, you know, in our neck of the woods that were impacting across the country um, regarding our governor at the time. And so we literally allowed it. It was a, a very natural, organic group who got together. Anybody could volunteer to be in the meeting. And so our agency um, has over 700 individuals and a significant number of those individuals are uh, would be classified as minorities. So we're actually a majority minority agency uh, where Caucasians are very small um, in the number of people who are employed in our agency. And so it's very important that we took, um, if, you know, looked into what was happening, especially as it had happened with our governor at the time and how people were feeling um, with the scandal that had happened. And so we needed a place, a central place for people to echo their thoughts and where they were. And then we had to actually, we sat with them and listened and they formed a council of which they elected their own, um, you know, the members that serve as leaders, servant leaders to the council, but they represented the collective voice of our agency. And we worked through some really, really tough meetings together. And, and there was a lot of tears. There was some anger. There were um, laughter. I mean, it was a gamut. It was all over the place. But we uh, collectively formed a charter. Are we, and I say we, I mean collectively the team did. Um, a charter for the council itself, of which they lead in. Now they've been in place solid for an entire year. They have helped us not only with internal review of internal issues that we're dealing with, um, one-on-ones as we need, but also are beginning to look at policies that we have in place in our agency, not only from our domain as agency employees, but also from our programs perspective from a health, from an equity lens. For us, it's really important as a Medicaid program, you have to make sure people can gain access to health coverage just get it to begin with, which for a lot of people, they've been turned down or denied for whatever reasons or ostracized or discriminated against and just not simply have, do not feel comfortable applying. So we're working on targeting that with our member advisory council as well, which exists exactly as you said, Secretary Jones, of people who actually receive the services and tell us what they're thinking and give us that guidance and support to how to structure it. So in the middle of that, we have that group and we also have our diversity council, which has been very important in influencing those factors to make those critical policy changes, not only for our agency staff, but also for the program itself. And it is the first um, that we've had even in our Commonwealth. We have also hired a diversity and inclusion officer whose sole job is to work on these these issues because it is that important, not only for our team in the agency, but also for our program as a whole, in which COVID has more than strikingly shown that, that individuals 
in certain populations, cohorts, particularly African-American individuals, Latinx populations, as well as Native Americans are particularly susceptible and vulnerable to the COVID. And some of it is, is um, why is that? And taking a look at that and examining the, the variety of issues. And then how can we as a group tackle those issues in those areas of health equity, not only getting access to health coverage, getting people enrolled into the Medicaid program, but also making sure that they can actually get access to care. It's those, um, what Secretary Jones was talking about, those conscious or unconscious biases that we may all, we all have. And individuals of color particularly struggle with that. It takes longer for them to be diagnosed with health conditions than the Caucasian populations. And so we're also seeing it in our data that we're closely watching the disparities that are happening, particularly with the COVID environment. So we are looking at it from an internal lens with our diversity council and all the work. And by the way, the council is also looking at the data. So we're actually, it's staff of any level of any group. And um, they don't have to be a, a manager or supervisor or director. They are our team and their powerful voice helps to direct um, where we go with the agency as well. So I encourage groups, um, organizations, and companies to lean, look within your own teams. Um, you have very, very um, powerful, knowledgeable individuals who can help you and be more than happy uh, to support you in that effort to do that. And that's where we found a lot of support, not only from our internal teams, but also with our own members. As Secretary Jones was saying, people who actually utilize and access services, they are the front runners and will be happy to tell you what their experiences are and also guidance for how to make positive change. And we are actively seeing that in our program because of that. Terrific. Thank you, Karen. And um, yes, go ahead, Secretary Jones. And Karen, thank you so much for referencing your internal counsel. One of the things that I've done as secretary is I have, um, I, I know people don't like the word required or mandated. However, when it comes to doing racial equity work, I'm very comfortable with saying some things are mandated. Mm -hmm. One of the things I have requested that is each of the departments within the secretariat, they must all create a race equity um, council which will report up to a governance council, which I will personally be co-chairing. But that is to ensure that as a, as a Health and Human Services Secretariat as a whole, we are all marching in the same direction of attacking racial inequities and injustice. Because one thing that is very clear with COVID-19, in Rhode Island, for example, about our positive COVID cases, about 60% are within our communities of color. And that is rooted in historic systemic racism. When we say rape, when we say health inequities, that's a byproduct of racial inequities. You know, so one of the big pieces for us is, the, for me, are the racial equity councils, but also our governor, um, a, a, a group within the administration came together to help with the creation of the Rise Together initiative by Governor Raimondo. And one of the many pieces was, for example, removing her stating that she was going to, at the executive level, have the word plantations removed from our letterhead, our website, all of that. That's something she could control in the executive level, at the executive level, at the, or the executive branch of government, I should say. And she also supported our legislature, putting it on the ballot for November, because for it to be removed from the name it's required to go on the ballot due to constitutionality. 
but we also have rolled out a mandatory implicit bias training for all state employees, which we know, Karen, is a small piece of the big training pie, but it's an important piece. We've also done a host and variety of other things, such as the governor being available and participating in many discussions with many of our, um, within many of our communities of color. And I myself, because I love doing community work anyway, just really being out there sitting and listening to community. And, it, and that way I can model for my directors, how do you really engage the community? No, the meetings will not be all, they love us. They, they think it's great. It's going to be hard. Go, listen, do, show. And big, we have to do that clear and just not just go and listen and do nothing. So we have to just be conscious of that piece but I love hearing, Karen, what you reference as well. It's great hearing that other states are doing that too. Well, if I may add one more thing, you have me, yeah. I'm all worked up and excited now, Secretary Jones talking. <laughs> one other thing um, this administration, Governor Northam has done, and we've been working on is, and particularly a high risk population are incarcerated individuals who, you know, disproportionately high number of African-American males um, and so one of the things, too, that we um, are working on and what have been particularly happening, some individuals who are coming out had addiction. And but when they come out, especially during COVID, they're all overdosing because they can't gain access to services or care that they really need to make sure they have those proper supports. So we've been working recently to address that very real health, health equity issue to get them enrolled in Medicaid because the lion's share of those individuals are now eligible for expansion benefit. And within 24 hours of notif being notified that they're, you know, discharging, we're enrolling them in the benefit. And so at least it gives them a start to say, we have you covered. We've got you, you know, you, you've got your health coverage at least, and we're going to get you set up with an appointment, you know, to make sure you have your medications before you leave. So you're right. The, the show it is, it was really important. It's not just a matter of words or reflecting what we say here. It's the actual work that you do that really makes a difference and sends that message to people that you really mean it. Yes. Yeah. Terrific. Well, unfortunately we have come to the end of our podcast time, but I wanted to just um, really take the opportunity to, to highlight what you all have said, which is, when we think about the critical role of a leader engaging and motivating people, a lot of what I've heard you say is we must meet people where they are. That is those both we serve and those that are in our agencies. And that for some leaders who may not have had the opportunities or the drive to address the issues of equity and um, racial justice, that the COVID um, pandemic has really created an urgent opportunity, right? It is, it is a place where um, if you haven't known yet how to take action or how to begin a conversation or how to sit in an uncomfortable community meeting, um, this is a, a unique opportunity because there is uh, so much to learn and so much work to be done to heal the current trauma that uh, many of our communities are, are feeling and including our staffs who have also been impacted um, by this pandemic. So I really appreciate us um, taking this, we think evergreen concept of the critical nature of engaging and motivating people and, and tying it to our current um, aspirations to be a more equitable society and to address the injustices that we're seeing as uh, 
the pandemic is is revealing them as clearly as you all described. So first, I want to thank you just as a as a um, former public leader myself for your amazing leadership and your amazing courage to create the conditions that you both have within your agencies and within your states. Um, and with that, I think we will wrap unless Hillary, there's anything else you would like to um, complete our podcast with. No, I'd just like to echo Gretchen's thanks um, for your time and your wonderful insights. Um, the, the reminder that these, just, these conversations are uncomfortable and they can be uncomfortable for everybody um, and the need to add structure to them and follow them up with action and sort of put your money where your mouth is a little bit are some good um, actual takeaways from the conversation that we hope all of our listeners um, will appreciate uh, moving forward. So thank you very much for joining us today. And we will continue to have um, additional podcasts in the Leadership Forward series. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much.